Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Latin America is watching as human rights are put to the test in the United States. What implications does the unrest in the U.S. have in Latin America? You have uh, one of the greatest democracies in the world. But what happened during this era where everything is under question, uh, unfortunately, inevitably, this type of experience is translated in the region in terms of setbacks on, on fundamental freedoms, rights, and, and basic principles. Here in this first week of June 2020, it's impossible to avoid the sense of deepening crisis across the Americas virtually everywhere. And look, I I follow Latin America for a living, and this is a Latin America-focused podcast, but as someone who lives just outside New York City, uh, it's impossible to ignore what's happening this week in the United States. And, you know, these scenes of police and protesters in the streets and this this tremendous brutality from the police and the riots, you know, it reminds me just personally of scenes that I covered as a reporter um, in both Argentina and Brazil, but never really expected to see in my own country. And, and specifically, what I, I keep thinking of is Buenos Aires in 2001. And beyond these scenes of rioting and bricks and rocks and things in the streets. It's the broader sensation that really gets me. It's this, you know, a country that is just coming undone, where there's desperation and hunger and violence and just not knowing where the bottom is. But, you know, you look around the hemisphere and it's not just happening here. Uh, Everywhere you look, uh, to varying degrees, we see uh, you know, threats to civil liberties and human rights uh, with the pandemic and a historic recession in the background. In many countries, democracies under pressure or an outright retreat. Uh, today, I'm joined on the podcast by Jose Miguel Vivanco, the, the director of Human Rights Watch's America's Division, to try to help us understand some of these common threads, try to make sense of the current moment, what's happening in Latin America, specifically where the risks are and where they're most pronounced. Jose Miguel, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Jose Miguel, I mean, these images that we've seen in the United States, uh, they remind me, you know, I, I mentioned Argentina in 2001, but more recently we saw, you know, some some really violent protests in late 2019 in Chile and Ecuador. What is your, I, I know you're based in Washington, what is just your personal reaction to all of this as a Latin American who lives here in the United States? Look, I um, I have been living in the U.S. most of my life, and, and it's the first time that I'm witnessing this type of massive and generalized uh, social unrest. Obviously, you know, Everybody knows that these protests and riots started with a video of that police officer from Minneapolis with his knee on George Floyd's neck as he was struggling for his life. That video triggered a reaction that was uh, actually predictable because it's uh, unfortunately too frequent, this type of um, police abuse in the U.S., even on camera. And that is... Part of the problem. I mean, the policeman basically smirked 
at the camera. He knew he was being recorded. Correct. And, and actually forcing the police force to wear uh, a camera every time that they interact with a civilian. But unfortunately, it has not been um, uh, enough uh, determined to change police in, in the U.S. Now, it seems to me that this initial protest, that, you know, today that is, is all over the country, has become something bigger than just protesting against uh, police brutality and racism. This is combined, I believe, with um, multiple issues, including massive unemployment as a result of the coronavirus in the U.S. And to some extent, I think, is a reaction to Donald Trump. So what we are seeing today is something very powerful, very dangerous, right? especially because there's violence. And then you have uh, Donald Trump that uh, looks like he's taking advantage of this, of this momentum to uh, mobilize his own base. And, uh, and he's looking at this problem, this issue, not as the head of a state who should try to create conditions for peaceful resolution and negotiation, but on the contrary, it seems to me that Trump is trying to take advantage of his momentum. What gets me beyond just the human outrage at all these scenes that we've seen, starting with, with the murder of, of Floyd, is that sense of institutional fragility and staring into the abyss. Do you, those, those comparison, that comparison that I drew with Argentina back in 2001, have you... Have you tried to draw similar parallels to some of these, you know, I'm not saying that the government's going to fall here in the United States. I don't think that's going to happen. But just that sense of a country really being on the verge of coming apart. Look, what troubles me the most is the National Guard. Because, um, and, and it's something that, by the way, I haven't seen in Latin America, in, except in very unusual cases when the police has been uh, overwhelmed. Because the National Guard, which is today present in uh, 23 states, I believe, they use weapons typical of war. They dress like in uniform, like soldiers. And you see streets in Washington, D.C., as well as as other states in the country, with Humvees and tanks typically used in Afghanistan. And um, another another feeling that I have is the feeling of tremendous frustration because um, police brutality and uh, racism become so frequent in the U.S. that it's almost like, you know, normal. Uh, there is a culture of impunity and brutality. There is a culture that prevents transparency. Uh, and the training of the police is extremely aggressive no, look, I mean, clearly these are issues that are rooted in just hundreds of years of history in the United States, and, and sorting them out is is incredibly complex. I want to start to move the focus a little bit more towards Latin America, and I want to ask you, you know, what sort of influence do you think these images coming out of the United States might have on the climate of human rights and police oppression in Latin America, because we we know how, I mean, it's complicated, right? Because the, these are countries that operate under their own realities, but we also know the copycat effect, especially from governments and from leaders that don't have a strong commitment 
to human rights. I mean, do you do you see potential for copycat effects? Absolutely. Unfortunately, the risk to uh, legitimize brutality all over the world, but specifically in Latin America, and um, when uh, a person uh, goes to the region and trying to promote a policies of accountability, we, we usually advocate for uh, law enforcement agencies to, you know, follow the rule of law, um, to, to, you know, if they are dealing with a crowd control, uh, they can't use legal force uh, unless our life is in danger. When uh, we go there, we, we evaluate and assess uh, the record of the police, and we obviously criticize the police if the, if the police is incapable to distinguish between uh, peaceful demonstrators and, and violent ones. And, um, and, 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 and we criticize government officials who seems to be kind of uh, um, adding more fuel to the fire and, uh, and asking the police to be more brutal or, or promoting legislation that will provide additional protection for the police. Obviously, all of that becomes much more difficult if they see images uh, coming from the U.S. that shows that the police could be 10 times more aggressive than in the region, and nothing happening. Then you, and you have, uh, you know, the, one of the greatest democracies in the world, like the U.S., with separation of power, with an independent judiciary, with a strong t- tradition of civil rights and, um, and free speech. But what happened during this era where everything is under question, Unfortunately, um, inevitably, uh, this type of experience is translated in the region in terms of setbacks on, on fundamental freedoms, rights, and basic principles. I mean, we there was a democratic recession in the region long before these protests and long before this pandemic. And I certainly, you know, believe that in places, particularly Brazil, um, where we know that there's a government that is openly imitating uh, both the sort of style and content of what they see in the United States. I mean, it occurred to me immediately when President Trump announced, you know, when he described these protests, these riots as domestic terror and said that he was willing to call in the army. uh, I mean, the obvious possibility is for other governments around the region, particularly Brazil, to, to follow in that path. And, and uh, Bolsonaro doesn't have an understanding of how democracy works, even though he spent most of his life in Congress. He has such a little regard and attention and respect for the independent media. And every time that, that he sees Trump in Washington, trashing the media, he goes verbatim and um and, and use social media to pass his positions to, to try to engage with his supporters, sometimes openly lying. One of the uh, advantages of Brazil, and the U.S. as well, of course, is that Brazil is a democracy. And they do have a, a very robust independent media and, and civil society. And unfortunately, the executive branch, in this particular case, Bolsonaro, have control of Congress. And the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has shown in, in Brazil that uh, is willing to exercise its role under the Constitution and has been challenging Bolsonaro 
on his executive orders during this pandemic and this uh, coronavirus crisis. But even before that, challenging Bolsonaro, overruling Bolsonaro. Uh, so that, I think, is, is encouraging to see that some of our democracies, you know, obviously are not uh, strong democracies, are weak democracies, full of problems uh, uh, of, uh, you know, violence and brutality and corruption, you name it. But still, during these years, uh, there have been a chance to develop some uh, institutional check on the executive branch. So it's possible to to defend the exercise of fundamental rights and freedoms. So you mentioned Brazil. As we look at these kind of these receding, these these attacks on civil liberties and, and human rights, where else in the region are you most worried right now? And I would say let's let's leave Venezuela and, and Cuba and the usual suspects out of it, because if you like, because things have been bad there for a very long time. But in terms of places that are clearly heading in the wrong direction right now, what else are you watching? It's important to highlight Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. Those are clearly dictatorships that deserve uh, an additional program. But Brazil is a big challenge, and Mexico as well. You know, Mexico, Mexico has a very deplorable human rights record in terms of numbers of killings, executions. I'm talking about the official statistics of people disappear. And to some extent, Mexico is probably more problematic than Brazil. Because um, the current government is incredibly popular, the government of Andrés Manuel López Obrador, and and the institutions of Mexico are weaker than in Brazil, uh, and that is the media, and I'm including particularly broadcasting media, you know, and Televisa compared to to Global in Brazil is much more obedient to the uh, the executive branch. And López Obrador, uh, a left-wing populist, he has the full control of uh, of Congress, unlike Bolsonaro in Brazil. And the judiciary has not really managed to to challenge the government. It, it, it is actually very interesting, Brian, to see how these two populist leaders with different ideological views, with regard to the uh, current event, I mean, the coronavirus, both governments, both leaders, tried for for a very long time to minimize, to downplay the problem of uh, of COVID nineteen, and they come out with similar arguments. For instance, they, they they shouldn't suffer as well as the you know other countries in the world, like Europeans, for instance, and the yeah. U.S. And I mean, Bolsonaro is an extreme case because he has fired two of his minister of health. Uh, AMLO has, uh, I think, reluctantly changed his position recently in the last few weeks. But um, but both are kind of very irresponsible in a way that they have been playing with fire. Now, Brazil and Mexico are certainly united in many ways in terms of their approach to the virus. But you know, I want to ask you, kind of among the countries that have more enthusiastically, let's say, embraced social distancing and lockdowns and quarantines in an effort to keep the virus under wraps. You know, there's a fine line between a strict government response that takes the virus seriously and a response that uses the virus as an excuse to consolidate power. 
Um, do you see cases of leaders that are crossing that line in the name of protecting from the virus, but but in the process, you know, going too far? Yes. One one particular case strikes me as very very troubling, very problematic, and that is the leader of El Salvador, yeah. uh, Najib Bukele. Bukele, uh, you know, clearly has used the pandemic as a pretext to to centralize power and to to go after the rest of the democratic institutions, uh, challenging several times and ignoring rulings of the Supreme Court and, and ignoring and challenging uh, Congress, where he doesn't have majority, and uh, trashing the media, trashing civil society. His idea of dealing with the pandemic is that through a draconian system, according to which anyone who is found on the streets in violation of the quarantine by the police is taken to essentially a police detention place for 30 days or more. Just because uh, the person violated the quarantine is not uh, because that one has any symptoms of the virus. And in practical terms, more than 15,000 Salvadorians have been, in our view, victims of arbitrary arrest with no remedy to challenge their detention. And at this point, uh, there are over 3,000 Salvadorians in that condition. And, and you see, the government has been unwilling to explain the policy, to educate. It's a sort of military approach to the problem, which is wrong. I mean, what you need to do is to persuade the people to cooperate. Uh, this is a health crisis. This is not war and, and require cooperation, education, persuasion. You, you need a free media to keep challenging uh, the use of funding by the government to deal with this emergency. And that is something that uh, the president of El Salvador is trying to make sure that um, essentially that he could run the business without being accountable to anyone. Let me ask you about a country that doesn't usually get mentioned in the same breath as some of these others, which is is Peru. They've had very strict lockdown measures there and have also arrested people with soldiers on the street who are a violation in quarantine. Or Does that make you uncomfortable or do you think that they deserve to be treated differently? Ideally, you want the people to respect the quarantine. Of course, and um, and you know you you need to explain why it's so important to keep social distance and to keep washing your hands, and um, the, the the whole point is to make sure that uh, on volunteer basis people understand the risk that they're facing and how how you should uh, behave to prevent um, uh, the the virus to went into your community, into prisons, for instance, in different locations. But if you anticipate that the population is not going to follow the rules, it's perfectly fine to establish uh, additional penalties um, for those ones who are not willing to respect the, the quarantine. But, but it has to be very carefully uh, enforced. So it's not um, a pretext for abuse. In other words, if you, if you have a a real and legitimate reason to go to the supermarket, to go to the pharmacy, to visit uh, a relative who is ill, 
if you have a, a justification to be outside, it's important that the police and anyone who is enforcing the quarantine understand that that they should not abuse of their their power and uh, and discriminate. But but in any event, if if somebody is subject of uh, brief detention, it's important that that detention is brief, and it's in a location that hopefully is not going to become you know. Um, you know, a serious risk for those ones who are there to be infected. Um, but that person has to be released the following day, maybe uh, with a precondition of paying a fine or so. But that is, you know, what is pretty much accepted. And that is what has been implemented in Peru, as well as in many other countries in the region. Finally, Jose Miguel, last question. Is there any place, and you know, forgive me for wanting to close on a positive note here because it, it just feels like there's there's so much awfulness right now, but there are some bright spots around the region um, when you look at uh, the handling of the pandemic generally, but keeping this focused on kind of that, that balance between civil liberties and, and human rights. Where are you at least mildly encouraged by the way things are developing right now? Hmm. It's um, it's a good question, and um, and um, it's not easy. <laughs> it sounds like you're struggling a little bit to answer it. <laughs> I am, um, and and before to answer that question, I'm, let me let me just make a brief point about prisons. I I was hoping that uh, thanks to the pandemia, it will help to develop a real debate in the region about, for instance, pre-trial detentions and, and conditions in prisons and so, so forth. But unfortunately, um, uh, we haven't seen uh, um, a, a decent and adequate reaction by um, governments who, who, who are, you know, aware of the, of, of the problem that represents for the, for the prisons to become an, a, an epicenter of the coronavirus, not just for the prisoners, but also for the, the staffers and the population in general. Now, if you ask me about a government or example that um, you know has been managing this uh, this process relatively well, I I guess that is the, the government of Argentina, the current the current president uh, Alberto Fernandez, because um, uh, remember that um, as soon as they uh, announced the 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 quarantine and the the rules of the game in uh, in March, um, the president had the the courage to invite on the stage probably the most prominent leader of the opposition, Rodriguez Larreta, the mayor of Buenos Aires, to be sitting right next to him and to uh, describe um, the the problem, you know, the virus, the consequences. The risk, the dangers of this, and the need to, uh, you know, develop usual policies and, and regulations uh, that will force uh, Argentines to be in-house in confinement. You know, I think that that gesture to show that this pandemic represents a real challenge for everyone, and that uh, it should not be um, used for political advantage, and uh, and you need a uh, to to address this issue with a sense of um, uh, a spirit of national unity, my sense that that was a very very powerful step that uh, I haven't seen in the rest of our region. 
well and and would be unthinkable in places like Brazil or or Mexico, for example, of some of these these equivalent figures associating on the same stage. So, no, I agree, and it's funny we we started with Argentina and we've ended with Argentina, but this time is a positive example. So it comes full circle. Jose Miguel, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Katie Hopkins. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas. This has been Brian Winter. Thanks for joining us.